If you would turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18, we're going to look at a few passages from the Old Testament regarding a, a friendship that was something special indeed, and one that is worthy of our emulation in every way, the friendship between Jonathan and David. And the first passage we're going to look at is 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 4, that follows the slaying of the uh, giant, the Philistine, Goliath, by the young man, David, indicating the great faith he had in the God of heaven to bring victory to God's people. And Saul, who was the first king of the United Kingdom, Saul, the son of Kish, had inquired uh, about this uh, young man who had accomplished this great deed that the uh, armies of the Israelites, that great army was, uh, uh, was afraid to, to take on. And yet David, a young man, took the lead in that, a great event with which we are no doubt all familiar. And in verse 58, the last verse of 1 Samuel 17, Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? So David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And then we get into chapter 18 and look at the first four verses here. Now when he had finished speaking to Saul, the son of Jonathan, or the soul of Jonathan, was knit to the soul of David, Jonathan being the, the son of Saul, the king, was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day, that is, took David, and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword, his bow, and his belt. That's the beginning of this wonderful friendship. If you'll now turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 23. 1 Samuel chapter 23, we look at verses 16 through 18 there in that chapter. Then Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. Now we've come to a point in time where Saul has turned on David completely. He has become insanely jealous of him. Uh, Saul is seeking to, to slay David, whom he had... Uh, taken into his own house, wouldn't let him go home to his father, but now Saul has had a complete uh, change of heart, obviously, toward David. And yet Jonathan has had no such change of heart and, in fact, is uh, doing all that he can to, to protect him. So Jonathan goes into the woods to strengthen his hand in God, and he said to him, verse 17 of 1 Samuel 23, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Even my father Saul knows that. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed in the woods, and Jonathan went to his own house. Now those are the two passages we're, we're reading, but if you look further at Second Samuel 1, you see there, after the tragic death of both Saul and Jonathan, there David laments uh, the loss of these two men in the verses from verse 17 to 27. And then later on, after Jonathan's death, in 2 Samuel 9, the first 13 verses there, David, as he is now the king, as God had anointed him to become king, and uh, Jonathan recognized that and knew that, 
After Jonathan's death, David inquired as to whether or not there were any of the house of Jonathan still left. And he learned that there was a son of Jonathan who was lame in both his feet named Mephibosheth. And he brought Mephibosheth uh, to him and determined because of the wonderful relationship that he had had with, with Jonathan, Mephibosheth's father, that Mephibosheth, who was lame in both his feet, was going to eat bread at the king's table uh, from that point on, that he was going to take care of him and those associated with him. In other words, that kindness that, that, uh, that David was shown by Jonathan, long after Jonathan had died, was still manifested by David to this descendant of Jonathan. What a beautiful account we have here of a beautiful and wonderful friendship. You know, the word friend, the word friend is used rather casually in the day and time in which we live. It's used casually, but not in the case of Jonathan. No, there was nothing casual about the kind of friendship that, that they had. It's been defined, friendship has, or a friend has been defined as, as the one who comes in when the whole world has gone out. I like that definition of a friend. The one who comes in when the whole world has gone out. And that's really what you have in this relationship between David and Jonathan. David may have felt that in, at that point in his life the whole world had gone out. But Jonathan came in and remained with him. Now first of all, let's look at the background and the qualities also that made Jonathan that kind of friend to David. What was it about Jonathan that caused him to react as he did and to become the friend who truly sticks closer than a brother, as the writer of Proverbs mentions, as he was to uh, David? Well, there are some very unusual circumstances in, in the background. We've already alluded to one of them, and that was that Jonathan was the son of King Saul. He was one of the sons of the king over Israel, the first king of the United Kingdom. And yet he knew that Samuel, the prophet of God, had anointed David as king. It was just a matter of time before David would become the king over Israel. And Jonathan was aware that a prophet of God had anointed someone else other than his father to become king. And of course we know, going back to 1 Samuel 15 where Saul's problems arose with the Amalekites as he did not carry out the command of God to completely destroy the Amalekites. To obey is better than to sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. Remember what Samuel said to him on that occasion? And Saul gave all these excuses as to why the people had not, had not slain uh, the cattle and all of the animals and the people. The Amalekites, the iniquity of the Amalekites had been full for about 400 years. God had, had tolerated the situation, given them more than ample opportunity to repent. And when the time came, and they had not repented, for them to be destroyed, Saul was the man who was king over Israel who was to carry out that task, that God-given task. And yet he failed to do it. And the kingdom was taken from him and it was just a matter of time before David, the anointed of God, was going to become king because Saul had shown himself to be disobedient. He had become lifted up with, with pride. He had become filled with jealousy toward David, had sought on more than one occasion to kill him. And yet, you may remember too that David, despite all of those efforts of King Saul, 
had respect for God's anointed, that is Saul at the time, had opportunity himself to kill Saul. Remember in the cave when he cut off the, the hem of his garment? He could have killed him then. And yet David himself had enough respect for the one who had been initially anointed by God through the prophet to be the king over Israel that he would not slay. God's anointed king. A lot to be said for David as well. That may explain some of why Jonathan was so drawn to him and became such a fast friend of his. But Jonathan was the son of King Saul. But he knew Samuel had anointed David. And what was his reaction back in verse uh, 17 to 1 Samuel 23? Do not fear, remember he said, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you even as my father Saul knows that. My father knows that. That was the problem. Saul knew that, and he didn't like it. Jonathan knew it and he respected it, even though Saul was his father. How easy it would have been, how easy it would have been for this young man, Jonathan, to have justified in his own mind assisting his own father in killing David. He didn't have to convince his father, Saul, to kill David. Saul was already determined to do that. All that Jonathan had to do was jump on board with the plan and help him carry it out, and yet... He actually sought to protect David. Think about it. Why? Why? One word answer. Love. Love. The thread that ties together all other Christian characteristics. Love. Jonathan loved God as did David. They both had a common love for the God of heaven. Jonathan's greatest determination was to serve God. And that must be true of every one of us. Our greatest determination is to serve God. And we will not allow any other relationship, whatever that relationship is, to hinder us from serving God fully. If our own father, if our own mother, Brother, sister, if they go astray, daughter, son, if they determine they're not going to serve God, then our responsibility is still with God and to serve Him. And to also appreciate all those others who are of that same determination. That's what we have here. If you look at Colossians chapter 3, as we come to the Christian dispensation, and these are principles, of course, under a former dispensation of time, but they illustrate very beautifully that love that is the crowning characteristic of the Christian's life, as we said in verses 12 through 14 of Colossians 3. Paul admonishes, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But now verse 14. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond or the girdle or the belt of perfection. The figure is a figure of clothing. Put on. You've put off the old man. Now put on these wonderful characteristics, mercies and kindness and humbleness of mind and meekness and long-suffering. But over all of this, that is, 
top off the garment, as it were. Tie it all together is the figure here with the belt that is the central part of the garment. Tie it all together with that central part of the garment, which is love, the crowning characteristic of the Christian's life. But it was the crowning characteristic of Jonathan's life. It was the crowning characteristic of David's life. Though they lived prior to the Christian dispensation, they nonetheless had a knowledge of God, a love for God, and a humility as a result of their recognition of their total dependence upon God. Jonathan's humility, that's a great characteristic. And what we're about to discuss in that regard grew out of a love for God and for those who were seeking to be like God. Whom should we love more than anyone else on this earth? Those who are seeking to be godlike. Those are the ones for whom we should have the greatest and deepest affection. Those who are truly seeking to be like God. And the humility of Jonathan that we see here contrasted to the terrible pride of his own father. A pride that led to his ultimate fall and destruction. That contrast between his humility and, and the pride of Saul, his father, was based upon Jonathan's ability to recognize something very important, and that was his own insignificance when contrasted to the majesty of God, to the magnitude of his power, and to the marvelous provisions of the creator of all things, what God had done in his life. And Jonathan's humility is a foundational characteristic in the Christian life. If love is the crowning characteristic, humility is that crucial foundational characteristic. Blessed are the poor in spirit, remember, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is the very first of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The genuinely humble, those who will lay aside anything and everything and anyone and everyone standing between them and complete submission to God. There is so much in Scripture from Old Testament to New about two very important contrasting subjects. Pride on the one hand, humility on the other. You think about it and you start to just look through your concordance and do a study on pride and do a study on humility. Pride goes before destruction. That's one of those passages you would find. And a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 16, 18. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood are among the seven things that God is said to hate in Proverbs 6, verse 17. A what? A proud look. That was Saul's whole problem, pride. Josiah one of the righteous kings of the southern kingdom was told in 2 Chronicles 34, 27, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants and you humbled yourself before me and you tore your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, says the Lord. Instead of being indignant and arrogant and puffed up with pride when the impending destruction was announced upon his God's rebellious people, Josiah sought to set things right. And he was commended for his humility and humbling himself 
And it led to God's hearing him because of that humility. What about Micah 6 and verse 8? He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk proudly with your God. Not what it says, is it? To walk humbly with your God. To walk humbly with your God. Humility in the New Testament. We've already seen the one passage that is crucial, Matthew 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Tonight we're going to begin to look at James chapter 4 in our continuing study of, of the epistle of James. And when we ultimately come to verse 10 of chapter 4, we're going to see this admonition from James. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Pride. Pride in the preacher can be a problem. We've talked about that before. The eighth psalm, the psalmist declared, how excellent is your name in all the earth. There have been those who seem to have had the attitude, how excellent is my name in all the earth, based upon their actions. And... Preachers are not exempt from it. Elders are not exempt from it. No one is exempt from what the devil tries to do, as he did with Saul, to lift him up with pride. And isn't that indicated of the devil himself in terms of what got him into trouble? Pride. Oh yes, the scriptures are replete with warnings against pride and admonitions toward what? Genuine humility. 1 Peter 5, verses 5 and 6. Likewise, you younger people, Peter writes, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and listen to it and be clothed with humility. There's that clothing figure again. Be clothed with humility. Humility, that tells us, is not a ring to be worn on the finger but a robe to be worn on the body. Be clothed with humility. Be consumed with it, if you will. And then he adds in that text, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Oh, yes. So much is said about humility. Peter goes on, therefore, he's made his point. Now, here's the therefore. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. And again, the temptation from Satan is exalt yourself in this time. Don't wait for the Lord to exalt you in due time. You exalt yourself in this time. And problems always arise when that occurs. Saul illustrates so dramatically the one who is brought down by pride. Both of them were ultimately slain in battle. The death of Saul and his sons at the hand of the Philistines. Saul and his son, Jonathan, among them. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan 
Abinadab and Malchishua, Saul's sons. A tragic end. A tragic end for Saul and his sons there who were with him and, and Jonathan among them. But here's something very, very significant about Jonathan's death. Though it was a violent death, though he died violently in battle, his death was not the pitiable end of one who had turned from God, one who had become self-willed, one who had been consumed by jealousy and hatred, as was the case with his father. A much different end. I think Proverbs 29, 23 summarizes very well the contrast between Saul and Jonathan, his son. A man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. Jonathan retained honor even in his death. Saul did not. F.B. Meyer once wrote, I used to think that God's gifts were on shelves one above another. And the taller we grow, the easier we can reach them. Now I find that God's gifts are on shelves one beneath another. And the lower we stoop, the more we get. That's true, isn't it? That's what the Bible tells us. The lower we stoop, the more we get as we're humbled by the recognition of the majesty of God and the magnitude of His power and His magnanimous gifts to us, culminating in the gift of His only begotten Son. And who taught and demonstrated that humility as well as did the Savior of the world Himself who came to this earth? No one. Matthew 20, verses 26 through 28, he taught it when he said, Yet it shall not be so among you, contrasting Christians, followers of Christ, with those out in the world. It shall not be so among you. Whoever desires to become great among you, let him become or be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. That's what our Lord taught. But here's what He demonstrated as Paul reveals in that familiar text in Philippians 2, 5-8. through 8. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he what? He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. What a statement. What a statement. Humility in the Savior. He taught it. He demonstrated it. But think with me in the last few minutes together about something else that characterized Jonathan other than his humility, and that was his wonderful generosity. Go back to that statement with which we began. 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 4. Now when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own Soul. Saul took him, David, that day, would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant 
because he loved him as his own soul. Here's the generosity. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. And what that passage demonstrates is that love, the love about which we've already spoken, is a love that gives. Love gives. And love gives willingly. Love gives willingly. And the love of Jonathan was that kind of love. But you know something? God has always required that, hasn't he? God has always desired willing service and willing giving. Go back with me for just a moment to Exodus 35 and look at just a few key texts that demonstrate what God has always desired in terms of our service to Him, in terms of our giving. You remember when the tabernacle was, uh, was under construction and they were bringing things, they were going to bring these things that were needed for the uh, completion of the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 35 verses 4 and 5. And Moses spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord commanded. Here's verse 5. Take from among you an offering to the Lord. Now listen to this. Whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it as an offering to the Lord. Then he goes into gold, silver, and bronze, and then on with the various specifics. But what's the key? Whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it as an offering to to the Lord. Now go down to verse 21 of that same chapter. Then everyone came whose heart was stirred and everyone whose spirit was willing and they brought the Lord's offering for the work of the tabernacle of meeting for all its service and for the holy garments. Who brought it? The ones whose heart was stirred and everyone whose spirit was willing. And notice what is said beyond that. And they brought their offering? No. In this case it says, and they brought the Lord's offering. It all belonged to God in the first place. They were just stewards of it. They brought the Lord's offering. That is the Lord's offering, the offering he had commanded, but it was, they, it was his to begin with, wasn't it? And then verse 22. They came, both men and women, as many as had a willing heart. There it is again. Willing, willing, willing and brought earrings and nose rings, rings and necklaces, all jewelry of gold. That is, every man who made an offering of gold to the Lord. Where'd they get all this stuff? Well, they had plundered the Egyptians, not plundered them, but had given, the Egyptians had freely given this to them, hadn't they, when they left Egypt, remember? But they didn't view it as theirs here. They viewed it as the Lord's, and it was the Lord's offering. Love gives. Love gives. That's the Old Testament example, or one that we can cite. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and 5. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Those verses there in the great chapter on love demonstrate that love gives. And what about God's love for man? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. What about man's love for God? We love Him because He first loved us. 1 John 4, verse 19. And the love of which John the Apostle wrote in another passage, 1 John 4, 9 through 11, is typified by these two men we're talking about today, Jonathan and David. Listen to it. In this, the love of God 
was manifested toward us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. John then goes on, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Jonathan and David's love for each other typifies that love about which John writes. The love that should characterize every single one of us for one another. Jonathan's name means the Lord gave. That's what the name Jonathan means. The Lord gave. Interesting. Jonathan recognized all God had given him. And he sought to exhibit that same kind of giving love to others. And in David, his friend, he saw much to love. And David in return saw much in Jonathan to evoke a like devotion. And they loved each other. Closer than brothers. They loved by serving and thereby became friends in the truest, deepest sense. And remember what Jesus said in John 15, 13 and 14. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. And then he added, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. It's been said that when we lose a friend, we die a little. I don't doubt that some of you, maybe all of you have experienced that. I know I have. I can honestly say that I've lost friends and in losing friends, I died a little. Hear the words of David upon learning of his friend Jonathan's death. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. Closer than brothers. Let us seek to be remembered as David remembered Jonathan. And may our prayer ever be, God give us humility and help us to mourn. God give us the wisdom, thy gifts ne'er to scorn. God lead us in loving, unselfish to the end. Let others consider and call us friend. This morning, if you would be called the friend of Jesus, it can only be because you've obeyed his teaching. And that involves a belief that He is the Christ that will lead you to fully repent of your sin, confess Him as Lord and Savior, and be buried with Him in baptism for the remission of sins. Then you can be His friend. Not one moment before. But He said, You're my friends if you do what I've commanded you. And that's what He commanded. Very simply, very significantly. Without that sweet obedience out of love for Him who first loved us, we cannot become his friends. But when we've done those things, he'll add us to his kingdom, the church, and we are his friends. And as we live faithfully the Christian life, we continue to have a friend in Jesus. No matter if the whole world goes out, Jesus will always be in. He'll always come in. That's the kind of friend I want, don't you? And if you can't say that he is your friend because you haven't done those things we've just outlined from his word, we plead with you to do it. 
If you've known him as friend, but you know this morning he's no longer friend because you're no longer doing his commandments as one who once did those commandments, come home. Come home. And once again, befriend the Christ through repentance, confession of sin that needs to be confessed publicly as we pray with you and for you. And to all those who are the friends of Jesus because you are keeping his commandments, may God bless you and may you continue to cherish and treasure the greatest friend you have, the friend who will never go out, though the whole world may. And may you seek to be the kind of friend Jonathan was to David and David to Jonathan, based upon a love for God that causes you to appreciate to the fullest extent all others who love God to that same degree. If you need to respond, will you come now as we stand to sing to encourage